Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm your co-host, Jacob Solis. This week, our team in Carson City, which consists of reporters Sean Galanka, Tabitha Mueller, and myself, talk about the state of the state, what Governor Joe Lombardo wants to get done in this legislative session, and reaction to his goals. After that, we've got a behind-the-scenes piece on snowplow drivers for the Nevada Department of Transportation. These guys are clearing the roads all winter long, and video producer Tim Leonard and I talk to some of them about their demanding jobs. Governor Joe Lombardo gave his first State of the State address on Monday night, giving us the first glimpse into just what kind of governor he plans to be, and what, exactly, his priorities are. Here to break all of that down, and there is a lot, is our whole Carson City legislative team. That's me, alongside Tabitha Mueller. How are you, Tabitha? Doing well. And Sean Galanka. How are you, Sean? I'm doing well, Jacob. Thank you. I must tell you, listeners, we are recording after the State of the State and after we have filed three stories on the State of the State, and we are all very tired, but we are all very jazzed about the State of the State. So first, what we're going to do is we're going to break down what was actually in the speech. And I'm going to start with you, Sean, because one of the first things that came up is the governor's recommended budget. How big is the budget? What are we talking about? $11 billion. Sean, that's several billion dollars. How big is that in context to other budgets? Well, for example, in the current biennium, which is basically the two-year budget period that the state government operates on, it was $9.2 billion. So basically, because of these large tax revenue collections from the sales tax, from the gaming tax, which are being driven up by inflation, Nevada is collecting a lot of tax money, and so it has a lot of money to spend. There's about $1.9 billion in excess cash that, that Governor Lombardo has to kind of bake into his budget with one-shot, one-time appropriations, investments into the rainy day fund. So that's, that's kind of a carryover from the current budget period. But then we're also seeing a pretty significant jump in just the, the size of the normal two-year budget going into this next two-year period. Okay. So if we were to look at that big budget, and it is a big budget, and we were to pick out the things that you think are most important, what would you say? And we'll go, go to you, Tabitha, on that. So if I had to look at that budget and say this is some of the most important stuff, I would say that you had some investment in education, right? So we're seeing some money going toward opportunity scholarships, which are would theoretically be used for students to go to private schools specifically. And then you also have a large portion of the budget, so $630 million heading to the Rainy Day Fund. And that fund is kind of there in case of emergency. And what Lombardo's administration is sort of saying is, look, we need to make sure that we don't spend this money. It's extra. And so therefore, we should just put it away for when the state really needs it in the event of, say, another pandemic. Right. And just to characterize how we use the rainy day fund during the pandemic, the state drained it essentially Absolutely. in order to reduce right. the amount of cuts that they had to make to state services at that time. And that was basically because of the, the economic crisis going on at the start of the pandemic, there was such a shortfall in tax revenues that there basically wasn't enough money coming in to fund the state government. And so Governor Lombardo is, is kind of saying, let's be prepared for the next time something like that happens. Let's make sure our, our coffers are filled up. And if there is an economic downturn, then we will definitely have enough money to ensure that state government can continue to operate and we won't have to cut jobs, you know, depending on the size of the economic downturn, of course. But certainly his proposed budget would boost that emergency savings, the rainy day fund, to its largest level in state history far and away. And he's also talking about creating a side surplus fund, the Nevada Way Fund, right, which would 
sort of act as a governor's slush fund to do what he would like with it. As is the Nevada way, one must assume. So <laughs> I want to touch on something you brought up, Tamitha, and that is education spending. So there were $2 billion in additional education spending allotted as part of this budget. How did we get to that number and what's it doing? Well, you know, in recent years, there's been this shift in education funding in Nevada. We moved to the pupil-centered funding plan, which basically there's a formula for what money goes to education. There's a formula that kind of breaks it out into pure pupil funding. And so this increase, this $2 billion increase kind of just coincides really with the large increase in tax revenues that the state is receiving at the moment. And that would basically boost funding by about $2,000 a student. Is that right? That is right. Yeah, we're going from about $10,000-ish to about $12,000-ish, give or take a couple hundred dollars. And what what I find interesting, though, is that as he was talking about this, he didn't really mention teacher pay raises at all. Those are, as uh, today, Ben Kiefer, chief of staff to Governor Lombardo, sat down with reporters and explained some of the details of the budget. And he basically said, Teacher pay raises, those are decided at the local level. That's a a local government thing. So we're giving these local governments more money to spend on education. Those local governments can decide to give more to teachers. Okay. And so I want to get into this because something he said at the end of, you know, saying, oh, we're going to give all this money to education was also that now you can't say you're underfunded and now I expect results. Do we have a good idea of what he means when he says that? So like a lot of things that he outlined in his State of the State speech, there weren't exact metrics, right? We don't know if he's talking about results in terms of test scores. We don't know if he's talking about results in terms of students passing. There's a lot of different things that this could be referring to. One thing that was clear, though, he wants to see literacy scores improved. That was a big part of his campaign. The fact that that recently under the Sisolak administration, there was a retention requirement removed from the read by grade three program. Basically, uh, under Governor Sandoval, it used to be that if a third grader could not read at grade level, they would not be allowed to advance to fourth grade. Until they could read by a third grade. Until they could read by a a third grade level. And so holding back students requirement was basically lifted under Sisolak. And though Governor Lombardo didn't say explicitly that he would implement that again, he was very clear that schools need to ensure that students who are not proficient in reading need to reach that level to advance to the next grade. So one thing he mentioned was school safety. So he basically attributed this uptick in school violence to the passage of a restorative justice bill that happened in 2019. And what he's saying is that he was calling for the most onerous sections of that law, characterizing that bill as having like handcuffed teachers, essentially, making it so that they couldn't punish misbehavior or classroom violence or anything of that nature. And the law doesn't prevent administrators from expelling students, but it does make that process more difficult. And so I think that he's looking to maybe ease that process. Mm, Okay, and we have to talk. We have to talk about school choice. So school choice was such a huge part of the Republican education platform, was a huge part of Lombardo's platform as Mr. Education Governor on the campaign trail. So he funded some opportunity scholarships like what we talked about earlier, but I don't know how much more he can do given the fact that we have a Democrat-controlled legislature, right? And so I think that in his State of the State speech, he deliberately didn't really give too much detail about any other school choice legislation or measures or anything he'd be trying to do. Well, I'm going to have to take off my interviewer hat, and one of you is going to have to ask me about higher education. What's so. what's happening with higher education? What is what is the governor proposing? On I'm that? so glad you asked, Sean. So 
What's happening here is that the NSHE, the Nevada System of Higher Education, has for years, especially after the pandemic, clamored for more funding. They got their funding cut during the Great Recession. It was never really restored, and then it got cut again after COVID. And so there are sort of a tremendous amount of sort of funding priorities that they've wanted. And now it looks like Lombardo is promising some or most of it. We're seeing a restoration of operating budget cuts that came from COVID, which is huge. It amounts to $76 million, and the universities and colleges have been clamoring for this. Didn't part of this also include money for scholarships or what's happening there for students looking to attend college? Yeah. So Lombardo has also announced that he's going to pre-fill the Millennium Scholarship funding, but to the tune of about $75 million. So that scholarship is for Nevada high school students who want to go to a Nevada college. It's pretty nifty as someone who benefited from the Millennium Scholarship myself. He's also funding something called Promise Scholarships, also for Nevada high school students. It can knock off most or even all of the bill of going to community college. So it's the closest Nevada has gotten to a quote-unquote, free community college. You know, Lombardo has picked up bits and pieces of the Sisolak agenda, especially when it comes to workforce. If you go look at a transcript of the speech, the way that Lombardo talks about workforce, the way that he uses words like alignment, alignment, alignment absolutely mirror the way that Sisolak talked about these things. And so I And be, people have been talking about it in this way for, in Nevada for years. Right? Exactly. And I think it's a very push and pull where a lot of, especially in Southern Nevada, think that, you know, the higher education system is not geared toward, toward workforce and towards corporations and companies that need people to work for them as they should be, and that everyone should be working in tandem. And instead, everyone is working in their own little fiefdoms. I know Governor Lombardo spent about an hour going through all of his policy goals and his, his budget highlights in this speech. So why, why don't we get through some other parts with a, a little bit of a quick hits through through some of these other highlights? You're right, Sean. It is time for the true speed round. Yeah. Okay, quick. The economy, Sean. What's going on? The economy. Lombardo wants to be pro-business, pro-development. He announced that the day after the speech, he would be going alongside Elon Musk to unveil Tesla's plans for a new $3.5 billion manufacturing facility in northern Nevada. That will be used for uh, electric vehicle production. All right. Crime. Tabitha, who does it? Where do they go? So, you know, Lombardo, since the beginning, has criticized the legislature's passage of soft on crime policies. And during his State of the State address, he took aim at them and said, we are going to introduce legislation that's going to make it harder to commit a crime in the state of Nevada. What that looks like is he said that would include enhancing charges for repeat offenders, empowering judges and probation officers to impose tougher sanctions, and putting increasing penalties on fentanyl possession. Jacob, what's he trying to do on elections? Oh my God, Sean, I'm glad you asked. So on elections, Lombardo has taken, I think, the Republican line, right? He has endorsed voter ID. He has criticized the expansion of mail-in, uh, universal mail-in voting. He's criticized ballot harvesting or being able to turn in other people's mail ballots for them when you're not a member of their immediate family. And I think one of the most interesting things he did was he called out partisan redistricting and he called for a nonpartisan redistricting commission to actually handle the process once that census comes out every 10 years. Is that related to Democrats shellacking Republicans in 2020, handling redistricting in 2022, and then using that to engineer a supermajority in the year when Joe Lombardo won the governorship as a Republican? Who can say? But the Democrats were not pleased. We'll say, we'll say this much. The Democrats basically across the board said, we are not going to touch elections. And actually, our elections work fine. Thank you very much. So we will see how that develops over the session. And then, Sean, what about what's going on with water, energy, land, anything notable that you noticed? Well, on water, Governor Lombardo said he wants to get more involved in, in Colorado River talks. If you've read some of our, our, our environmental reporter Daniel Rothberg's stories, you know that the, the West is, is in danger. 
there are critical water shortages. And so when it comes to having those discussions to cut water use, Governor Lombardo is basically saying he's going to take on a more active role in those discussions. He also left things pretty open-ended when it comes to energy policy. He did mention an executive order that would allow electric providers to develop, quote, dedicated in-state generation resources. And so we'll have to see what exactly that executive order looks like. But really, there there's some kind of just broad strokes hinting at what we might see in energy policy. And what's interesting is on the affordable housing front, he did advocate for public land use for development. So and kind of looked notably at Congressman Mark Amaday. Yeah, something to watch. And thinking about housing discussions, I know that's kind of the the bread and butter of the legislative Democrats, as well as healthcare. I know that you're you're tuned into those healthcare discussions. What was he looking at in terms of healthcare? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it was looking at mental health and trying to, which I think is a bipartisan issue. I don't think it's just Democrats or just Republicans that are going to advocate for mental health services. And he's going to put some more funding into mental health care which is direly needed here in Nevada. The other thing that I think is notable is he kind of took a swing at the public health option, called it political theater. And it'll be interesting to see what happens with that, how it plays out, because it was signed into law. So it'll be something to watch. Right. But it it won't go into effect until 2026 because of some actuarial backgrounds. Right. It takes a lot of time to implement. They've got to go through processes to hear it, make sure that they can take care of all the details, background, all of that. So. And while we're on the subject, the Democrats were not pleased to hear this public option bashing from the Lombardi. No, not at all. I mean, that was one of their big pieces of legislation during the 2021 legislative session. And so I think for them, this was just kind of a, a partisan attack that could mean a lot of tension in the legislature as things get ramped up. Okay. And we kind of mentioned a little bit, but generally speaking, how do the Democrats react to the speech? kind of a mixed bag. You know, I, I think they indicated that there are areas where, you know, there there's agreement, like, for example, raises for state workers. Lombardo proposed across the board raises for state employees, 8% in the next fiscal year, and then 4% in the year after. Lombardo did tack on a proposal for b- bonuses, retention bonuses for state employees on that He basically asked the legislature to prioritize that so they could get those first bonuses out the door by the end of March. One last key proposal in Lombardo's budget is a year-long suspension of the gas tax. Basically, this is a 23 cent per gallon tax on on all motor fuel. And Lombardo is proposing suspending this tax for an entire year, which he said would translate into hundreds of dollars in savings for a family of four over the course of that year. Basically, this would create a $250 million shortfall in the budget. But like I had mentioned earlier, Nevada is sitting on that excess cash reserves. And so basically, they're taking a little chunk of that $1.9 billion and plugging this $250 million hole that you know gives a little bit of relief to consumers by knocking down gas prices by a little bit. I think one last note on the surplus here is I think Democrats have been very, very critical of the fact that that extra money could be used for other things like rental assistance. We we know the eviction moratorium ended. There's been, you know, rental aid is kind of out the door right now. And Clark County is worried about dealing with a bunch of people needing to stay in their homes. So, Well, a lot of open questions, a lot of things to keep an eye on. I guess one one last open question for, for all you listeners, and who knows how Joey will feel about this, but I'll, I'll throw it out. What does the Nevada way mean to you? Let yeah. us know. Listeners, call in, send your emails to Joey, joey at the NVND.com. Do not send them to me. 
Tweet um, at us, even. <laughs> tweet yeah. at us. Whatever yes. works for you. Uh, yeah, absolutely. We want to hear from you. Flood Joey's inbox. All right. If you want to read more about the state of the state on the NevadaIndependent.com, you can. We wrote, I think, something like 6,000 words today. Our fingers are tired. So please visit the NevadaIndependent.com. Read our coverage. Enjoy it. Live, laugh, love. Joey, please edit this out. Oh, okay, Jacob. Well, that was a lot to cover, but don't worry. I made all of those edits that you asked me to make during that segment. Um, how have you guys all recovered from that long night of work? Uh, you ask, how have we recovered? The question should be, should we have recovered? Or wait, no, have we? I don't know. I'm so tired. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, clearly it sounds like you <laughs> have not recovered quite yet. You need a little more coffee, I guess, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. More coffee <laughs> is required. Well, in any case, now that we've talked about the aspirations and the goals of the new governor, let's jump to some of the other state employees and talk about snowplows. That's right. We've got a feature this week on the people who are keeping our roads clear when there is snow on the ground. With lots of extreme weather hitting northern Nevada this winter, video producer Tim Leonard and host Joey Lovato are checking in with some of the snowplow drivers who keep the roads drivable at this time of year. Tim shadowed one snowplow driver on a 12-hour shift. You can watch that video on our website and our YouTube channel. But they also heard from other Nevada Department of Transportation workers who clear the roads on the Mount Rose Pass between Incline Tahoe and the Reno Basin and who deal with some of the most snow recovery of any of the divisions of snowplow drivers in the area. Chris Hallen lived in Ely, Nevada before moving to Reno 20 years ago in search of work. He eventually landed a permanent position on Mount Rose as a snowplow driver for the Nevada Department of Transportation, also known as NDOT. Nature is what keeps him going in spite of the job's challenges. I, I like the four seasons. I'm real close to the lake. It's beautiful. Yeah. You just can't see it every day. I see it and I'm like, oh, wow. <laughs> right after it snows on a big storm, we've got everything pushed back and uh, the sun comes up. It's, it's incredible. It's some of the best shots you'll ever see. Up here on the mountain, either you love it or you don't. When I started in Reno, you know, we got a couple inches, so that's pretty much how I learned. Driving on the freeways and other traffic, it's definitely a handful, especially with people that want to drive, you know, 70 miles an hour or whatever in the snow. Most snowplow drivers don't start out day one driving with the plow on the front of their vehicles. You start off with a 10-wheeler, driving a 10-wheeler, you know, wherever you're going to go, hauling material, learn how to operate the truck, and then they put a plow on it, and then you start driving that around for a while. And usually when it starts snowing, you have somebody with you at all times until you feel comfortable you can do it. Then you'll follow somebody as they're plowing and trying to duplicate what they're doing. Now we're going to hear from Matt Bradbury. He works under Chris and has been a snowplow driver for eight years on Mount Rose. It's not for everyone up here. It's, It's harsh winters. It's long hours. I mean, every day it snows, we're up here 12 hours a day. So if it snows four weeks in a row, we're up here every single day away from our family, friends. It can get a little stressful, but it's nice. Every single holiday, you never know what you're going to miss. But So we're out here doing our job, trying to keep the roads open, keep the public moving happy. So with COVID and the difficulties of the job and the pay not being as good as plow drivers for the county or cities, it's been pretty tricky for NDOT to keep people employed. 
This reaches across different state agencies, actually, with an almost 25% vacancy rate in state jobs. Yeah, it's hard, you know, it's just, I don't know, morale with COVID and everything, just, yeah, it's hard to keep people. You know, we're cleaning our trucks a lot more and, you know, social distancing and all that. And I've had a lot of close calls. You're going down the freeway plowing snow and somebody will pass you on the right as you're plowing. The wind rows going by and they spin out in front of you and you just got to slow down and hopefully you don't hit them or they to hit you. So it's very scary. You guys okay? You guys okay? Right, yeah, you're pretty good. You're in there pretty good. Let me grab my shovel and do a little shoveling real quick. I'll do the fronts on both sides and see if we can't get you to just pop right out. And these guys that work on the mountain have other service vehicles besides these large snow plows, which is what you see on the roads a lot. Uh, they also have something that they call the snowblower trucks. It's got big giant ribbons in the front. And anything that is, because once the banks get about four feet tall, these plows can't push it over. So as it keeps snowing or blowing, and then the blowers come up and chew it all up and spit it back up on the mountain. So it widens out the road. Yeah, he's just loading up uh, with salt and sand for uh, in case it does snow. And then we start putting some of that out for the melted traction for the public. Traction for us as well. We also wanted to know what the most gratifying part of the job was, and Matt said that it's about knowing that he's making a difference. Just helping people, you know, you're seeing your accomplishment, you're keeping the road open, running the snowblower, that's, that's a major task, because that's, that's one of the key pieces of equipment that keeps the road open, to get that snow off the road. The plows just keep moving it to the side so that the snowblowers can come through and make room for more snow, basically. Is it fun <laughs> yeah it is i mean it could be frustrating at times because you know you're navigating this plow you got to watch traffic you have to sand you know i mean there's it's a lot of multitasking you got communications on the radio your other crews and then you get up higher in big storms the the snow comes down and starts making the road more narrow then sometimes we can't even have two plows past each other so you got to communicate like hey i'm coming up don't come down because we can barely pass a car you know coming up and cars don't realize it they'll just fly by us not not caring and for chris some of the best parts are solving problems on the road it's it's sometimes the chaos you know the sun the snow's blowing the wind's blowing or excuse me the wind is blowing and everything else the whiteout conditions pulling people out helping people the biggest thing for us is people not putting on their chains. The truck drivers, the semi-trucks will put prohibited truck signs down, but their GPS says to go up this way. They don't pay attention to the signs. They come up the road, and we pretty much have to close the road because we can't get them turned around. There was another semi that was coming up. It was below Mount Rose Ski. He got stuck, pretty much blocked the road. Another lady was coming down. She kind of went off the road and couldn't get out. So I just hooked up to a strap and pulled him out and put her on her way. And we got him chains, or somebody brought him up chains, and he put his chains on and made it to the top, turned around and went back down. All righty. It's kind of easier for me to be in my supervisor truck in case somebody gets stuck in a ditch or something. It's easier for me to pull up in front of them, pull them out, than a plow. 
So I try to stay in that as much as possible, but if, if uh, we're down or short a guy, somebody's sick, I have no problem getting into a blower or a, you know, a plower and doing this all day. We have an eight-man crew right now. It's normally full. It's nine, and then in the wintertime, it's usually 13. So it's a little tougher, but you know, I get out and do whatever I can, and same with everybody else on the crew. And in the 20 years that Chris has been working to help keep the roads clear for drivers, he's seen some changes, mainly in how many people want to use the road. Yeah, when I was doing the split shifts, you know, going from days to nights, I'd be on nights and you would see maybe three cars. Nowadays, it's nonstop. It's incredible. And as you can see, just hearing it, it's like a freeway up here. 60 miles an hour, they don't slow down. (laughs) They got places to go. When the plows are either plowing the road or treating it in preparation for a storm with things like sand and salt, they can pose a danger to other motorists if those motorists are careless or impatient. Our video producer, Tim Leonard, who was doing this interview with me, asked more about that. Like if you're on a plow and you got, you know, a big line of cars trying to pass you or... They do it. They, just... they do. And it's, it's, it's crazy. And usually they do it around a corner because we're not going fast enough. I mean, we'll do 25 miles an hour up the hill and that's too slow for them. So they'll pass us. It's dangerous. You know, you got oncoming traffic coming down and as busy as this road is, you just never know what's going to be around the next corner. Yeah. So it, it, it's, it's scary for us because even if somebody tries to pass us and a car's coming down, the car that's coming down is going to, of course, go into our lane. And then we got to panic and either put our plow into the ditch or at least try not to hit them. And because these things are, they'll rip open a car pretty easily, right. especially with these plows on the front. And it's not only other vehicles that make the road so dangerous. We just had a tree fall like a month ago. One of the plows hit it. He had a truck behind him. He said luckily he hit it first because it would have went through the cab probably. It was a good-sized tree laying across the side of the bank. So you never know. Yeah. Like just this morning, I picked up a boulder a mile up, sitting in the middle of the road, just plopped down. These drivers are working 12-hour days on average. Almost all of that time that they're working is spent in one of the trucks. Eat lunch in there, eat dinner, stop, maybe walk around, stretch your legs, go to the bathroom, right back in the truck. It's an air ride cab, air ride, those are air ride seats, but the cab, yeah, the new ones are a lot nicer. And even though most of the time, these NDOT guys are pulling people out of ditches or spots where cars can get stuck in the snow, from time to time, even the plow drivers need some help. I have had a motor grader pull us, pull me out when I got stuck in one of the older blowers. He doesn't have anything in front, but he's got a hitch. Oh, yeah. Need anything? Need a screwdriver to get the handle off. Chris also told us about what him and his team prepare for when they know that there's a big storm coming. It just depends on the storm. We all carry extra clothes. Sometimes we have to flag with accidents. Sometimes we just got to be out shoveling snow for the ditch, for the drain so the snow melt off will go down the drain. Sometimes we can only get so much so much of the snow off. A lot of times we'll have we call runoff. And even though everything's gone off the road, it starts melting and running down the road. So it'll refreeze and it'll go around the drains. Once snow starts coming in, we're always got our avalanche beacons on when we're plowing snow. Snowplow and snowblower drivers face a lot of challenges on the mountains from cars to avalanches. 
But one of the biggest challenges was something that I really didn't think of. I would say the wind. (laughs) You just can't see, you can't navigate. As much as we drive the road and we kind of know the turns of what's coming up, sometimes you don't even know where you're at. I mean, it gets that bad. You can't even see the hood in front of your truck. And that's when it's like, okay, we need to close the road. You know, it's not safe up here for sure. So if you have one takeaway from this, it's important to remember that when plow drivers are on the mountains or when NDOT has to close the roads, that's for safety reasons. You know, a lot of people really get upset when we close the road. And one of the big things is we get over 100 mile an hour winds up there with snow going through. You literally cannot see from five feet in front of you. So we will close the road and it's not to upset the public or, you know, close them so they can't go skiing or anything. It's just for not only our safety, but their safety. You can't see. And usually when we do leave it open or it starts getting really bad, people get stuck. They panic. They can't see. The trees will be packed with snow and a gust will come down and you can't see for 20 seconds, 20 or 30 seconds. And they panic, hit their brakes. Either they stop in the middle of the road, the car behind them can't see, it causes an accident, and then we're closing the road anyway. So we're trying to do it for us and them. This story was reported and produced by Tim Leonard and Joey Lovato and edited by Joey. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. This show is produced and edited by me, Joey Lovato, with additional help from Michelle Rendells and Tom Tate. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. You can also email us at podcast at Our theme song is from Emily Pratt, and we have additional music from Storyblocks, June Pearson, Tom Fox, and Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm your co-host, Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week.